Welcome everybody. Welcome to River Glen. River Glen's one church in many locations. Welcome to all of you in Pewaukee, Waukesha, and welcome to hundreds of you joining us online. Very great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us for church. I'm standing in front of one of my favorite places in Waukesha, I'm in front of the Fox River. On the other side is a trail where I love to ride my bicycle. It's a beautiful location. Did you know that River Glen is actually named after this river? Back in 1997, we launched the church and rented space, started meeting at Waukesha West High School, right beside the Fox River. I learned some interesting facts about the Fox River preparing for this message that you may know, but I did not know. First of all, did you know that we have two separate Fox Rivers in Wisconsin? I've always thought we had one Fox River, but no, we actually have two Fox Rivers in Wisconsin. One Fox River is way north of here. It flows through Lake Winnebago to Green Bay. But this Fox River right here is separate. It starts out about 10 miles northwest of Menominee Falls, and it flows 84 miles south through Waukesha and Burlington, and then it flows another 118 miles south through Illinois, down into the Illinois River in Ottawa, Illinois. The total length is 212 miles, and it flows from north to south. I know many people like to canoe or kayak in the Fox River. I've never done either of those, but I'm guessing it would be easier to go with the flow and kayak or canoe to the south in that direction, and much more difficult to go upstream against the flow and kayak or canoe to the north. And that's why I'm here at the Fox River to get us thinking about flow, because we're in a series called Upstream. We're looking at eight famous statements Jesus made in his most epic sermon called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five through seven. Jesus begins this sermon with a series of eight beatitudes. And these statements, these beatitudes kind of mess with our minds because they seem counterintuitive and countercultural. They go against the flow, against the tide. But Jesus tells us this is where you find true life and true joy by going upstream. If you read the beatitudes, you'll realize that they're not really commands. Jesus gave commands about these subjects and other teachings, but the Beatitudes are not really commands. They're more like invitations, gentle invitations to a wiser, better, and happier way of living. Each Beatitude has three parts. They start out with the word blessed. Sometimes we pronounce this word blessed. Not sure why we do that. It sounds more churchy, but you can just pronounce it blessed. It means joy, delight, happiness. Each beatitude starts with the word blessed, and then it gives a description of the beatitude and then a reward at the end. And all the beatitudes go against the flow in our culture, especially the next one that we're going to look at today. But before I read it, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine this river here is filled with piranha. Of course, it's not. But many of you know that piranha are literally flesh-eating fish. They have sharp teeth, strong jaws, and they're aggressive and vicious. A bunch of hungry piranhas can devour an animal in a short amount of time. Years ago, they made a horror movie about piranhas. I never saw it. Looks too scary for me. I would never go swimming again. But in some ways, piranha represent the flow of our culture that we live in right now. It seems like everybody is looking for a reason to devour each other. We have many problems and challenges and needs facing our country and world right now. But instead of those problems uniting us, we're attacking each other and dividing over politics, race, the pandemic, and many other issues. We even divide over chicken sandwiches, which is better, Chick-fil-A or Popeye. Spicy chicken sandwich wars rage on. 
And in today's culture, when we make mistakes, what do we do? We cancel people. We've even coined a term for it, cancel culture. In cancel culture, people constantly write each other off and shame and guilt rule the day. And maybe some of us are in conflict right now with a family member, a boss, a mother-in-law, a spouse, a parent, and you're ready to cancel them, or maybe you already have. Maybe you had a fight in your marriage and you said, you know what, I'm finished. Or you had an argument with a parent and you said, you know what, I'm out of here. Or you disagreed with somebody online and you kind of blew up at that person and just deleted them altogether. We live in a cancel culture, a culture of piranhas where we constantly devour each other. But before you cancel, cancel anybody, before you write anybody off, Jesus has some very upstream kind of wisdom from the Beatitudes, which is nearly the opposite of anything that we're seeing or experiencing and hearing in our culture today. In Matthew chapter five, verse seven, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In other words, blessed are those who don't write others off. Blessed are those who don't cancel others, but who show and extend mercy. Jesus says the happiness we experience in life is directly tied to the mercy that we give. I came across this definition of mercy that I really like. Mercy encompasses all of God's kindness, both his forgiveness of the sinful and compassion for the suffering. So it doesn't matter why someone is struggling or hurting, maybe they brought it on themselves or maybe they're the victim of forces outside of themselves. Either way, mercy shows forgiveness and compassion. One of the most famous stories Jesus ever told, maybe the most famous story Jesus ever told, is actually about mercy. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan, but that's not what Jesus called it. Nowhere in the story does it call the Samaritan the Good Samaritan. Look at how it describes the Samaritan. It says he is the one who, who had mercy. So this is a story that shows us what mercy looks like. It says that man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. This man takes a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho about 17 miles or so on this windy road. Let me show you a picture of what it looks like. This journey had a 3,000-foot descent to it, which is why he says, why it says he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. But it was not just windy and downhill, it was a dangerous road. They gave it a nickname back then, they called it the Bloody Way because this road had a reputation for crime and violence. People would walk on it, robbers would come and beat them up and, and leave a trail of blood. And so Jesus says this guy was walking on the Bloody Way where he is beaten and left half dead until somebody comes along. And here's the first someone, a priest, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This is a Jewish priest. And according to Jewish law, if you're gonna enter the temple to worship, then you can't touch a dead body because it would make you unclean. You'd have to go through a purification process that takes several days. So the priest passes by. But I want you to notice that Jesus says the priest is going down the same road. In other words, he was actually going away from Jerusalem. He was done with church. He was leaving the place of worship. And so here's what happens in, in today's language. Jesus says the lead pastor has left church. And after he leaves church, he walks down the street and sees someone who is half dead and he just kind of walks on by and he says, you know what, not my problem, that is your problem. And then another person enters the story. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. 
a Levite would be like a worship leader today. They would sing and play music in the temple and worship leaders, they're always the cool people, not the lead pastor. Lead pastors are never cool, but the worship leader sees him and passes by on the other side. And so you have the lead pastor and the worship leader leaving church and they both see the same person and they both walk right on by this person. And here's what they're thinking. You shouldn't have walked down the bloody way. You are getting what you deserve. But then Jesus introduces us to a third character. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and he saw him and he took pity on him. Now, Jews hated Samaritans and the feeling was mutual. They were bitter enemies. Their hatred had gone on for hundreds of years. But a merciful heart sees and feels compassion even when you've got a good reason not to. Maybe the person in need is a neighbor who is mean to your kids or the coworker who has stabbed you in the back or an ex-wife or ex-husband. But the need is still there and the merciful heart sees and feels that need like the Samaritan feels pity. But the Samaritan didn't just feel pity and compassion. He takes action for the person in need. Look at how mercy takes practical action. He went to him and, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now they would pour oil and wine on wounds because it would soften the wound and also to make it clean and help it heal. It says the next day he took two denarii, that's the equivalent of two weeks of wages. That's merciful. Just imagine giving away two weeks of wages to help a stranger you don't even know. Give him two denarii to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Notice how the Samaritan was incredibly generous, but he had limits. Mercy has limits. He didn't cancel his trip and move into the hotel himself. He didn't quit his job to take care of him. He left some money and said, this should take care of it, but I'll check back just in case it doesn't. I've heard it said he was the good Samaritan, not the great Samaritan. The point is mercy has limits. He was incredibly generous, but he wasn't stupid about it. Mercy has limits. He gave the man what he needed and he was practical about it. And then Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In other words, this is what mercy looks like. So let me ask you a question. Who's the person on the side of the road for you? Who is that person in your life right now you know is in need in some way? And I know our tendency is to pass them by because it's so easy to do. But if Jesus died for everyone, we need to show his love and mercy to everyone. And loving other people and showing mercy to other people doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that they do and everything that they say or validate everything they do. But it does mean we honor the image of God in them by showing them honor and love and mercy. I think for many of us, we, we miss something in this story. And here's what we miss. Who are we in this story? Maybe we don't ask that question or we wonder if we're the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan, but who are we in the story? Here's what I think. I think we're the person that is dying on the side of the road because our enemy is Satan and Satan has stripped us, beaten us and left us half dead. But Jesus is the Samaritan who comes along to save us. And because of his death and resurrection, the anointing oil is upon us. And his shed blood is like the wine that the Samaritan poured over the wounded man.
to heal his wounds. And just like the Samaritan says, I'll come back, Jesus promises to come back and extend more mercy on us. So who's the person on the side of the road for you? Who can you extend mercy to? Not because they deserve it, but because we've been given mercy by Jesus and we didn't deserve it. A few weeks ago, I attended an event held by Habitat for Humanity in downtown Waukesha. They held this event on the property called Dominica Park where they planned to build 16 single family homes and two duplexes for a total of 20 future homes for families in need. For many years, River Glen has partnered with Habitat in Waukesha. We've contributed financially through an offering we do each fall. And we've also sent many volunteers to help construct homes. And so they went out of their way at this event to recognize and appreciate River Glen, as well as many other partners. But the event opened my eyes wider to how God's working in our community. When the director of Habitat spoke about their mission, here's what she said. She said, our mission is to put God's love into action. Isn't that great? That's mercy, putting God's love into action to meet the needs of people, just like the Good Samaritan. This is what we're supposed to be doing as followers of Jesus, showing mercy and serving the needs of people in our communities. For me, the most impactful moment came when they interviewed a couple ladies who will move into houses in Dominica Park. One of them shared about her disabled son, nine years old, cerebral palsy, can't talk or walk, not sure how long he will live. Housing is difficult for them. Newer homes are more handicap friendly, but not affordable for her. They currently have to carry him up and down stairs. She thought home ownership is something that would never happen for them. But through Habitat, they're gonna be one of the owners in the new development. And she wanted to thank everyone. And I wanna pass along her thanks to you because your generosity with finances and volunteering is an expression of God's love and mercy and is gonna help her family and change their lives. I walked away feeling so proud of our church that night for putting God's love into action. There's more we can do. We need to do more, we will do more, but I'm glad that we show mercy. And remember, there's a reward in this beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Not the piranhas, not the arguers, not the cancel culture people, not any of that. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus says, those who show mercy will receive mercy. What goes around comes around. All of us have needed mercy in the past. We'll need more of it in the future. I take it Jesus says that those who show mercy will receive mercy from others in the future. And I think he also means that those who are merciful will receive more mercy from God in the future. And so would you join me just this week, just for seven days? Would you join me? And let's do one act of mercy a day before we lay our head on the bed. Doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be world changing, but just one small act of mercy each day because of what Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Or how about this idea? How about, how about volunteering and, and joining one of our serve teams this summer and meeting needs as a way to show mercy and kindness and love, but not out of obligation. Do it from your heart. Do it because God's love and mercy rescued you and empower you to show love and mercy to others. Do it from a heart overflowing because God has shown you remarkable forgiveness and mercy, and because merciful people are the happiest people. Which leads us into the next beatitude, also about our heart. And so I wanna talk briefly about it and 
how it connects together. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, in some ways, I think this can be the most intimidating beatitude. It sounds unrealistic or unattainable, like perfection. But pure in heart doesn't mean perfect. No one's perfect. We all slip from time to time. We all struggle with something. Pure in heart means authentic. It means genuine and real. It means you don't pretend to be someone on the outside that's entirely different from who you really are on the inside. You don't pretend to be spiritual at church and then devious and deceiving in your business. You don't use God talk and spiritual language in your small group and then have a foul mouth at work. Pure in heart means you have consistency between what's in your heart and what's on the outside. It's not about perfection. It's about genuineness and happiness that comes from putting God first in your heart. I think some of the most stressed out, burned out, unhappy people are people with a divided heart. They haven't given their heart to one thing. It's like having one leg in, in one canoe on the river and the other leg in another canoe and you're getting pulled in different directions and eventually you're gonna fall down and probably get hurt. But real happiness and joy comes from making Jesus your one thing, the main thing in your heart and in your life. Jesus says, I wanna be number one. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Jesus says, I don't wanna play second fiddle and have any rivals in your heart, whether it's your career, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, anything. Because Jesus knows you'll be happier if you don't have competition in your heart for the top position because you've given it to him. He's your one thing. He's your Lord. And you can count on him. And look at the reward. Jesus says, you'll be, you'll be happier with a pure, undivided heart. He says, because you will see God. Those of you who wear glasses or, or uh, contacts, I wear reading glasses. You know that when your glasses, uh, your lenses get dirty, you can't see very well. When your lenses are dirty, everything looks dirty. And when your heart is divided and mixed and dirty, you don't see God clearly. I like how the message version of the Bible uh, puts this beatitude. It says you're, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. When Jesus is your one thing, you'll see God working through your life. You'll see God moving and leading and guiding in your circumstances. You'll see God in creation. You'll see God at work in other people. And you'll see God in heaven someday. You start seeing God everywhere. But here's something you need to understand. Jesus is not at war with your heart. Jesus is at war for your heart. And that's why he wants you to go upstream because that's where you find real joy and real life through him. Instead of devouring each other and canceling everybody, he knows you're gonna be happier if you're full of love and mercy and you'll receive more mercy. Jesus knows that a pure, undivided heart is the key to joy and seeing God at work in your life now and forever. And so today I want to invite you to give your heart to Jesus and put him first in your life. When you believe he's the son of God and accept him as your Lord, he puts his heart inside of you. He transplants his heart in you. God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. He gives you a pure, new, undivided heart. And then you keep leaning into him with your new heart because none of us will be perfect. We continually need to lean on him and walk with him and align our hearts with his priorities. But maybe you've never really given your heart to Jesus before. Today's a great opportunity for you to do so. Or maybe you did that a long time ago and, and you've drifted and have a, a divided heart. 
And today's an opportunity for you to recommit your heart to him. Maybe some of you are ready to take the next step of baptism. Baptism represents what Jesus did for us to give us a new heart. Baptism represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the symbolism is, is washing away of your sins to give you a new and pure and undivided heart. Sometimes people will say to me, Ben, I've, I've got this thing, I've got this issue. And once I fix that, then I'll get baptized. Listen, if you could fix it yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus to cleanse you and give you a new heart. Baptism is all about new life in Jesus. And next weekend is a baptism weekend at both campuses. We call it the Baptism Bash. We go outdoors and celebrate baptisms, and we'd love to celebrate your baptism with you. It's real simple. We have everything you need. We give you a shirt you keep. If you have any questions today, you can stop at the Next Steps Hub in the lobby after the service, and we have people to help you. In the Bible, every person who put their faith in Jesus, every single person was baptized. And so we want to help you take this next step. And we've got several ways that you can sign up. You can just take out your phone right now, text the word to the number on the screen, and we'll send you a link to sign up for baptism. You can also go to our website at riverglen.cc and, and sign up there or stop at the Next Steps Hub in the lobby today after the service. We'd be honored and delighted to help you take this next step. If you're watching online, we'd be glad to help you figure this out and set this up for you. So today, I wanna to invite you to respond to Jesus. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? And if, if God's working in your life today and you, want, and, and you know you want him to make some changes in you, would you just pray silently where you are today? Just say, Jesus, I give you my heart today. I need you. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm placing my trust in you. And I say yes to you as my personal Lord and Savior. Let me pray for all of us. Thank you, Jesus, for being so merciful to us. Thank you for giving us not what we deserve, but what we really needed, your forgiveness and mercy. And thank you for changing our hearts, giving us new hearts so that we can align our priorities with you and, and show mercy and, and love to others. Thank you that when we show mercy, we will receive more of it. And when we put you first in our hearts, we can see you. We see you at work in our lives. We see you in the beautiful world that you've made. We see you working in other people's lives and we'll get to see you forever. We wanna live upstream lives, God. And I pray for those who need to make this upstream courageous decision to get baptized and get signed up today. We're forever grateful, and we lift you up in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.